And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. episode 117 of the Keith Law Show. I am back from a semi-planned hiatus, uh, mostly because of spring travel. I was on the road a ton in March, which I have to say felt pretty good after three straight springs of little to no March travel. Uh, It was the first time I went to Florida for spring training since 2019, and only the second time I'd been to Arizona. Um, Obviously in 20, never made it, 21, we were still in the pandemic. I was not vaccinated at that point. I was not flying until I was vaccinated, at least. Um, and in 22, the lockout ended late enough that I only got to Arizona. But I was—I did both. I uh, blogged quite a bit about both. For those of you who subscribe to The Athletic, you can see a couple of posts from – they're from the Cactus League, although I do have a few uh, notes on some raised prospects I saw while in Florida. I've had multiple draft blog posts as well, also on The Athletic, covering – Prospects from University of Florida, Alabama, Wake Forest, Miami, uh, high schoolers, Walker Jenkins in North Carolina, Arjun Nimala in Florida, all uh, both of those guys, as well as some of the others I mentioned, all probable first round picks uh, in this June's draft. And then I got sick. So I've been home for, oh my gosh, eight days, which I think is my longest stretch at home since President's Day weekend, which was my first trip. That might be right. Somewhere in there. doesn't really matter. But I uh, will be back out on the road a little bit later this week and then starting to hit both minor league stuff and some of the more local um, amateur players here in the mid-Atlantic region. There's quite a bit in Virginia I need to see, a little bit in Pennsylvania, and hopefully get out on a plane one or two more times. And I will, I promise, I will see LSU before the season is out, and I will get back to see Florida uh, to see Wyatt Langford, who was <clears throat> hurt when I went to see Florida. I'm stressed enough about that one that I actually dreamed last night I was in Florida. I'd landed in Orlando to drive up to Gainesville and was going to miss the game because there was a four-hour delay on whatever interstate that is that goes from Orlando to Gainesville. I guess that's actually Florida's turnpike. Anyway, it's on my mind a little bit. Just wanted to let you know. For those of you who follow me for non-baseball content, I wrote my first piece on board games for Wirecutter, which is one of our sister sites over at the New York Times. It went up last week, and it looks at... The phenomenon of roll and write games, games where you roll some set of dice and then mark off one or more spaces on your personal score sheet based on what those dice say. And I recommend five of my favorites aiming at different skill or experience levels, uh, running from Quix, Q-W-I-X-X, through Three Sisters, which is one of my all-time favorites, all the way up to Twilight Inscription. 
My guest today is author, well, actually former rocket scientist turned law professor and now best-selling author, Ozan Varol, whose uh, brand new book, Awaken Your Genius, comes out on April 11th. You can order it at geniusbook.net. You'll also get a special video course bonus if you order through there. His first book was How to Think Like a Rocket Scientist. I have read both of those books in the last month or so and can recommend them highly. Ozan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on, Keith. So... First question, just at a very high level, uh, I read a lot of books in this sort of general space. And there are many, many books out there that try to talk about creativity and these ideas of entrepreneurship, particularly how to foster creativity in yourself or maybe in your company or in your group that have already been on the market. So I, I believe Awaken Your Genius adds something to it, but I'd like to hear in your words, what do you hope that this book adds to that body of literature that hasn't been adequately covered or explained before? Great question. Um, I think number one is it brings my own unique perspective into the mix. And one of the things I talk about in the book is we have this assumption that original means new, right? So if you're not writing something entirely new, you're not being original. And I think that assumption is incorrect. And that that is sort of at the crux of the book. You can be writing about, as I am, creativity in the book, uh, but as long as you're bringing your own unique pers perspective, your own unique take into the mix, then what you're writing is going to be fresh. Uh, I remember I watched, a, this is a podcast interview with um, the author of The Martian, Andy Weir, and uh, he, you know, one of my favorite sci-fi authors, and he was describing his creative process, and he said... This isn't the first book about uh, an astronaut stranded on the Martian surface. Like other books have been written ju just with that plot line, but he brought his own unique take, which is his belief in and his interest in hard science. And then he brought that into the mix. And so the book became uniquely him. And so I think about my book in the same way too. Yes, it's been creativity has been written about before, but I brought my own unique take into the mix. And um, and so the book in that sense is is original. And I picked genius for a very specific reason. We tend to think genius means the most talented or the most intelligent, uh, but I use genius to mean something different. Uh, there's a quote that opens the book from Thelonious Monk. He says, genius is the one most like himself. Um, and genius in the Latin origin of the word actually means the spirit attendant at birth in each and every person. And uh, so all of us is like Aladdin and our genie or our genius is bottled up inside of us waiting to be awakened and so I wrote a I wrote a book to give people a really simple guide to stop living life on autopilots and tap into their own unique talents and and unleash original insights from within their own depths. So I love that answer, by the way, particularly the idea that there is something of genius in essentially everybody, especially in a world where not all people, but many many people now are doing what is essentially knowledge work or it's the information economy. There's so many buzzwords for it. But if you're using, if the, your work product, and I guess this would apply even to students as well or people working in the nonprofit space, all of this, if it's coming out of your brain, then, and tell me if I'm interpreting you correctly and what the message I got from the book also is that the best way for you to add value to whatever it is you're doing at work, school, volunteer, et cetera, is unlocking this creativity 
and essentially not following the herd. That was one thing that I came that I felt like was a really strong through line through the three major sections of the book and even through a lot of the individual anecdotes is the people who tended to follow the herd, whether individual people or I should say companies as well, in your stories, they don't fare very well, certainly. And many of them are they went out of business or they missed some huge opportunity. It was by getting away from what is considered common standard, even in some cases what is considered acceptable, that was where people found not just success, but often breakout success that changed their lives or in some cases even changed the world. Absolutely. And if you think about it, no one can compete with you at being you. You're the first and the last time that you'll ever happen. And if your thinking is an extension of you, if what you're building is a product of your own inner wisdom, you'll be in a league of your own. But if you suppress yourself, if you don't claim your unique talents and ideas from within, then that wisdom is going to be lost both to you and, and to the rest of the world. And as you said, yeah, there are so many stories of, of businesses essentially entering the hall of same. So they they sort of like try to cater to the center and try to follow the herd. They assume other businesses know something that, that they don't. And so they copy and paste. And we do this in our personal lives too. So then they become unremarkable because we notice things because of contrast, right? So something stands out because it's different from what surrounds it. If there is no contrast, if there is no anomaly, no idiosyncrasy, no fingerprints, you become invisible. You become the background. Uh, and the, the only way to stand out in a remarkable way is to actually lean into those useful idiosyncrasies. And as I write in, in the book, this isn't easy to do because at some point in your life, you were probably shamed for your useful idiosyncrasies because they made you different from other people. But what made you weird or different as a child can make you extraordinary as an adult. Like what, what led you to you having lunch alone in the cafeteria can be the reason that leads to your success now. And we all have those stories, right? And so we learn to suppress what makes us different, but the key to success is often leaning into those useful idiosyncrasies and, and using them as opposed to continuing to hide them. I couldn't agree more. As somebody who certainly has those stories that I won't share now about being a child who is definitely different and definitely ostracized, especially when I was very little because I was definitely different from other kids and also a lot smaller than other kids. Never a good thing. Also, if you're one or the other, I think it's fine. If you're two, two of those things, that's, that's where you start to get to a little bit of trouble, but somehow I made it. Now I have my own podcast, which is the ultimate sign of success as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And look, I was the president of my high school's computer club, did not bode well for my dating life, uh, but it brought me to where I am today. So, <laughs> so, uh, there's a drive to feel productive that all of us who are information workers of some sort face. Um, but in your view, and that of some of the experts you, I've read, and you mentioned like Cal Newport, who who sort of popularized this concept of deep work, succumbing to that drive is the worst thing we can do if we want to be creative. Can you explain a little bit about this sort of false productivity, like the inbox zero concept, which I do not like or practice, and what we can do as individuals to combat it? Yeah, hustle and creativity are antithetical to each other. Like you can't innovate while you're clearing out your inbox or trying to reach inbox zero. And so many of us live our lives moving from one email to the next, one notification to the next, one meeting to the next without having any sort of time to like pause and reflect and contemplate and, and daydream. 
something else that you were probably chastised for by your teachers when you were growing up was daydreaming. But daydreaming mm -hmm. is essential to to creativity. Uh, and the best way to accelerate can actually be taking your foot off the pedal. And if you think about it, if you ask people, where do you get your best ideas? Most people will say, I get them in the shower. Uh, and they find this weird. And if you, actually, if you think about it, it's actually not weird at all. The shower is one of the few moments in our day. Well, it's a solitary environment. We're in there, just ourselves, no smartphone, no notifications, no distractions. You're allowing your mind to drift and daydream. And all of these insights begin to bubble up to the surface. Imagine the types of ideas you might be able to generate if you replicate those shower-like conditions throughout the day. In Awaken Your Genius, I call this putting yourself on airplane mode. Um, so just for a few minutes throughout the day, let yourself daydream. Uh, sit and stare at the ceiling. I have a chair right next to me right now where I sit with a notepad and a pen for 20 minutes a day. And I just write down whatever comes up, whatever bubbles up to the surface. And by the way, 95% of what comes up during those thinking sessions is complete junk, is useless. But I find that you often need to do that thought dump and need to get those ideas out for the gems to bubble up to, to the surface. Uh, walking is also really useful. Research shows that walking boosts creativity. And there's so many examples of scientists literally walking themselves into the right answer. So they'll be stuck on a problem, won't be able to find a solution. They'll walk away from it. They'll go for a walk. No phone call, no audiobook, no podcast, just you and your thoughts. And then the answer will bubble up to the surface as if by by magic. Uh, and so, so much value in in building those moments throughout your day and and uh, and putting yourself on airplane mode. I feel like we don't give ourselves those opportunities for those moments, those air, those shower like moments, because and I speak from I'm I'm including myself in this too. I'm going for a walk or a run. I need music. Oh, I've got a long drive coming up. Well, do I have my podcasts set up? Do I have an audiobook for this? It is we, I have to say we, because I'm in this, right? We are afraid to be mentally idle. Oh, I'm going to deal some deal with some laundry. I'm going to iron. Oh, there's that show I've been binging, right? But most of those, they're kind of my, actually like ironing. It's a little, uh, uh, one of my peculiarities, but just because I find it very satisfying how it looks there, right? It, I see that I've done the work, right? I, I did something. It looked bad. It was wrinkled and now it is not. But that is also a task that I could do. And my mind could be somewhere else where I'm doing something. I feel like I'm productive in one sense, but I could have that idleness, which is basically like the shower. And I feel like we've all fallen prey to that for, for a variety of reasons. But to me, it's just this fear of boredom. I see it in my kids too. They have to be doing something which really means consuming some sort of content. And I worry that we've all, all generations have robbed ourselves of creative opportunities as a result. And I think part of the reason why we feel obligated to fill every moment with productivity is that thinking feels like a waste of time, right? Like, so when you're, when you're clearing out your inbox um, or when you're ironing, you can see visible progress. Like you're, you're doing something that's having an immediate impact and immediate results. But while you think nothing seems to be happening, at least not on the surface, uh, but appearances mislead. And the research is clear on this. When you let yourself daydream, uh, the default mode network in your brain comes alive. And so your subconscious is deep at work, actually. It's connecting associations. It's, it's marrying the old with the new. And it's generating ideas that you otherwise may not be 
able to find. You actually, I guarantee you, otherwise you would not be able to generate. Uh, and I see this in my life all the time. Um, the the most productive, and I, I wrote in the book about this too, uh, the most productive four hours I ever spent, uh, I wouldn't say ever, but probably in the past two years was on a flight back from St. Louis. And I live in Portland, Oregon. So flight from St. Louis to Portland, coming back from a keynote. Normally, I have this obsession to be productive, as you described on flights. But I listened to this inner voice that said, you know what? Don't pull out your laptop this time. Just sit and see what happens. So I uh, ordered some crappy airplane wine and uh, and stared at the window for four hours straight. And as I stepped into the void, something really strange happened. Like ideas started to come and amazing ideas. I was struggling with the title and subtitle of the book, the title and subtitle of the book came to me at that moment. Uh, solutions to a problem that I've been wrestling with for months. The more I listened, the more ideas began to come. Um, and, and here's the thing. Ideas don't arrive with a parade. Like there is, there is, the, the, there is no big bang. Uh, the, the ideas often show up as a subtle whisper. The big thing initially never screams that it's a big thing. So the big thing when it first arrives actually look, looks quite small. And if you've got no silence in your life, if you've got no void in your life, uh, you won't be able to hear that subtle whisper when it comes. One of my favorite anecdotes uh, from the book, well, it's actually a pair of anecdotes, one I really knew and the one I hadn't heard of before. You start with the well-known story of how an engineer Kodak developed the first digital camera in 1975, which is kind of hard to fathom. I was in, still in diapers at that point. But the company declined to pursue it to protect their film business. That's where we are a film company. That's where we make our money. That I'd heard before. I think I heard it in business school. I didn't know the part you follow with, which is that Fujifilm faced the same threat to their core film business, and they pivoted to something entirely new. And as a result, the company thrived and became something very different than what we knew them as before. Tell me that story and what that says to you about the leadership at Fuji and maybe even their corporate culture. Yeah, exactly. So unlike unlike Kodak's leadership, um, Fuji's leadership said, okay, now that we can't do what we have been doing, now that our traditional business model is getting disrupted by the rise of digital cameras, what can we do? What are the core capabilities of our company that can be repurposed in new ways to serve new, new markets, to develop new products that we haven't developed before? They placed a number of little bets on other industries, uh, but one of my favorites is they launched a high-end skincare line called Astalift. Uh, now, if you're listening to this, you might be thinking, wait a minute, photography and film and skincare have nothing in common, but appearances deceive. It turns out that the same antioxidants that protect photographic film from harmful UV rays can also protect human skin from harmful UV rays. It also turns out that collagen, which makes up like half the materials in, in, in film, is a really common ingredient in skincare products. So departments at Fuji that have been developing film photography for decades were repurposed to develop these high-end skincare products. And in 2012, when Kodak declared bankruptcy, Fuji's diversified annual revenues exceeded $20 billion. Um, all because the leadership was willing to let go of what made the company really successful in the past and look to the future, lean into uncertainty, and be willing to place little bets. A lot of these little bets, by the way, failed, but the few of them that succeeded 
paid off in spades for for the moon shots that did not take off. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You don't spend a ton of time in the book on this, so I don't want to divert us too much. But what you just said, too, you you have to accept that there will be failure in any of these creative endeavors. And I feel like that often is another thing that doesn't matter who you are. I, I experienced the same fear of failure. I wrote books. I've changed career. You know, when I was younger, I've changed careers. I worry about failure with just specific articles I write. I just had to get over it because I, in my case, I wouldn't really be very good at my job if, was, if I was afraid of being wrong, essentially. It's failure in my world is being wrong. I'm wrong all the time. It's the nature of what I do. But I had to work pretty hard on myself to get over that. And it, it does seem like that is also... Like I said, you don't spend a ton of time on it, but it's a bit of an undercurrent here. If you're going to be creative, if you're going to take these moonshots, you have to accept that there's also a chance you're you're going to fail, and hopefully you learn from it. Uh, for sure. It's try, fail, try, fail, try, fail, succeed. There is really no other way. Uh, people who are prolific in success are also prolific in failure. They succeed more because they try more. Um, you know, like Michael Jordan made, I think, more last-minute baskets to win the game, but he also uh, missed m m most uh, last-minute baskets to lose the game. Or Babe Ruth was the home run king, but he was also the strikeout king. Um, so a lot of your attempts will fail. Many of them will be less than spectacular. A few of them will succeed, and they'll comp compensate for everything else. Um, and that's certainly been true in my life as well. I approach life like a curious scientist might, and I run experiments with potential futures. Um, you know, I was a law professor for 10 years, and after I got tenure, I decided to leave. Uh, and I didn't just sort of blindly jump into the unknown. I placed little bets and ran little experiments about, you know, I, I started a coaching business. Turns out I don't love coaching. I started a consulting business. Also wasn't the right fit for me. Uh, and then I started writing online. I started a blog and the, I really enjoyed writing. And I it found my writings found an audience and the audience began to grow over time and culminated in, in, in a book deal. My last book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, which came out in 2020. It was only after that book achieved some level of success that I, I decided to leave. But a lot of those little bets, just like Fuji's little bets, failed. But the only way to figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work, uh, in your case, which of your ideas are going to succeed and are not going to succeed, which of your articles are going to resonate and which ones are not going to resonate, the only way to know is to stop overthinking and start trying. There's just, there's no other way. And it happens to me all the time where I think I wrote this brilliant article and then I put it out into the world and it's crickets. And then I write an article that I'm like, eh, like, 
this isn't great, but I got a deadline tomorrow. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit publish and then it goes viral. Uh, just no one knows anything until you actually try. Yeah. Oh, I, I have been there. Uh, that happened a few months ago. I'm not sure what the article was exactly. And I thought, wait, that one, that's the one that did the numbers. It was, but I didn't take care with the article necessarily, but I didn't expect it. Right. And if I hadn't, I don't even remember if it was my idea or my editor's idea, but it became one of those, you know what? I'm glad I tried because it did, it did do numbers. It did turn out to be one of my best articles, especially for an article that was unique. It was not one of the things readers expected to see, but it did really well. And it was because I took that very small, that very small chance. Um, several of your anecdotes revolve around people who refuse to take no for an answer. And this is following up a little bit on this idea of failure too, um, or they refuse to quit a long range task that isn't bearing fruit because they think ultimately it will, or it will at least yield insights that will help them. Like you said, try, fail, try, fail, will help with the next try. You mostly give examples of folks who succeeded. Like I, the one I love is Sylvester Stallone came up with the idea for Rocky in the script, but he insisted he had to star in it. He would not sell it to a studio unless he could also play the title character. How do we know when it's time then to move on or even consider moving on from a particular task or goal that isn't working out? Yeah, great question. And it's so contextual, which makes it really hard to answer. Um, I think I'll begin by saying, you know, uh, you know, as the creator, like when it's time to quit and when it's time to move on and when, when it's time to keep pushing forward. Um, and I'll give you an example from my life. So I, I mentioned I, I quit. I quit being a professor after I got tenure, uh, which most tenure professors don't do. Uh, and that, that that was also my thought too when I first became a professor. I thought if I get tenure, I'm going to be a professor for the for the rest of my life. And I uh, I remember this was in 2017, shortly after I got tenure. I stepped in front of the classroom as I do, walked up to the podium, put my notes down. And my whole body sank. Like my shoulders collapsed. My heart sank with this feeling of not again. I can't believe I'm about to teach the same case for God knows how many times again. Um, and I thought initially it was a fluke, but the signal kept presenting itself. So I leaned into it. And, um, and, and so your body is often sending you these powerful signals about what's bringing you alive and what's dragging you down. And by the way, this profession, I absolutely loved being a professor. So I loved it so much. And then one day I stopped loving it. Um, but if I was stuck in my head of like, I have my tenure plan, I'm going to keep push pushing forward regardless of the internal signals that I'm getting from within, uh, you probably wouldn't be listening to this conversation right now. I probably would not have written Think Like a Rocket Scientist and certainly not Awaken Your Genius. Um, and so there is so much value in, in listening to the signals coming from your body. And this goes back to the conversation about like putting yourself on airplane mode. Most of us don't do this. There is now something called email apnea where people are holding their breath while they're answering emails. This is shockingly common. We have completely shut off our bodies and there's so much wisdom within that's not bubbling up to the surface because no one is paying attention. So that's number one. And then I think number two goes back to this idea of experimentation. So when do you, when do you quit and when do you push forward? Do you, again, the only way to know if what's bringing you alive is going to resonate is to try. Um, 
so many people get stuck in their heads because they want to see the the precise destination and all the twists and turns that life is going to take to get them there. But life doesn't work that way. Uh, there's a quote in Awaken Your Genius that I shared from Rumi. He says, as you start to walk on the way, the way appears. The implication being the way is not going to appear until you actually start to walk. Uh, life lights the path ahead only a few steps at a time. So as you take each step, you go from not knowing to knowing and from darkness to light. And the only way to know what's going to come next is to actually start walking um, and then being receptive to the information that you're getting both from within and from without. You also mentioned another book I've, I've loved and recommended, The Checklist Manifesto, which to me sits very much in parallel to your book. These are these are addressing very different aspects of our, I guess, our work lives, but you could apply it to personal life, life as well. And you you explain that dichotomy, I think, quite well. It's Look, this is Awaken Your Genius is for one set of things. Checklist Manifesto is for another set of things. You want creativity in lots of areas of your life. You don't want your heart surgeon to be overly creative um, or your airplane pilot, for example. So can you go into a little bit about sort of what are these, what is this dichotomy? Where are these two situations and when do you know, look, this is the time to just follow the recipe, go buy the book as, as, uh, as strictly as possible. Yeah. And I love that book, by the way, the checklist manifesto. Yeah, it's great. Checklists are, are wonderful for repeating processes or tasks um, that you've done in the past that can be repeated, that should be repeated the same way over and over again. And I used to fly planes when uh, I was in college, got my pilot's license. And so, you know, every time I flew my Cessna 152 before I got on the flight, I pull out my checklist, sometimes much to the dismay of the people I was flying because they would look at me like, <laughs> wait, you need a checklist to fly the plane? And, and I would explain to them, no, that I know exactly what to do, but the checklist is here so I don't miss a step. Even though I had repeated the thing a hundred times, 500 times, I would still use the checklist to make sure I would not miss a step. But one of the questions I ask in the book is, well, what if your goal isn't to repeat what you've done in the past? Uh, isn't It's not to execute, but it's to generate new ideas that weren't there before. Uh, and creativity isn't something that can be reduced to like eight steps or a checklist that can be repeated over and over again. Uh, it requires not deliberate practice, but deliberate play. So being open to possibilities, bending the rules, setting aside structures and checklists, and your idea of what is reasonable, inviting your inner child to come out and, and actually play. That's how idea generation happens. And, and to me, play is essential to creativity. It's so hard to create anything if you're stuck in, in a rut and stuck in your own old perspective of the world. And I share a number of ideas in Awaken Your Genius about how you might be able to bring play into, into your life. And I'll give you one of them. Um, I share the story of the, the writers of The Office. Whenever they would get stuck in this creative rut, they had this practice that actually it was play. They would... Um, take 15 minutes and they would brainstorm ideas for an episode of Entourage. Uh, and Entourage, for those who haven't heard of the show, it was this HBO show about the actor Vincent Chase and his group of friends who live in LA. They get into all sorts of trouble. And so they would, the, the writers of The Office would set aside their own work and they would pick up the, the, the uh, they would pick up an episode of Entourage and they only had one rule. Um, 
the the episode they created had to end with Vincent Chase winning the Oscar for Best Actor. And by the way, as far as rules go, this is like actually the rule is inviting play because if you know Entourage, it's so unreasonable for Vinny Chase to to win Best Best Actor for uh, Best Best Oscar for uh, or Best the Oscar for Best Actor. And so uh, so it, it set up this playground for them to play. And then they would go back to writing The Office and something interesting would happen. All of a sudden, ideas would begin to come. All of a sudden, they would get a lot more creative. And it's because that playful mindset, those 15 minutes that might seem to an outside observer like a complete waste of time, would carry over to their work on, on The Office. And so they'd be able to generate ideas for episodes, dialogue that they otherwise uh, would have missed. And so there's there's so much value in bringing play into whatever it is that you do. So if you work in marketing, for example, and you're stuck in a rut trying to create a marketing campaign for your product, take 10 minutes to design the a campaign, like a Super Bowl ad for a competitor's product. Uh, you know, create unreasonable ideas, just play around and then come back to your own work and uh, and watch Next Level Magic happen. My guest today has been the author, rocket scientist, retired professor, Ozan Varol, whose new book, Awaken Your Genius, you can order at geniusbook.net. You can also, uh, and I do recommend both that, and his previous book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, and you can find more information about him at his website, ozanvarol, O-Z-A-N-V-A-R-O-L.com. Ozan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Keith. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. The show will be going back to as weekly as I can possibly make it. I already have next week's episode in the can. Uh, so that is good. I'm actually ahead of schedule for a change. And we'll be back to some baseball writing, hopefully by the end of this week, depending on how weather and the schedule permits. But I will resume that as well. And the board game writing and blogging over on the dish, meadowparty.com slash blog will, of course, continue. Thank you all so much for listening. Stay safe. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.